Well, good morning, church. Well, it is my privilege to introduce our guest speaker today, Dr. Guy Shimaleski. Uh, Dr. Shimaleski is the Dean of Campus Ministries over at Friends University. And so we have a great relationship with them over there. We're excited about what they're doing and what you guys have going on. So it's a great privilege for us to have him here today, uh, sharing the message God has laid on his heart. So would you please welcome Dr. Shimaleski. Well, good morning, Central Community Church. It is great to be with you. Uh, welcome to those of you joining us online. Great to have you as well. Uh, it is great to be with you. Um, first, write that name. I know you heard him say it, and then you thought, did he say that right? He did. Now, here's the confusing thing. If you look at how it's spelled, you might think to yourself, nope, he didn't say that right. I've checked and, and triple-checked. The, the spelling is correct. But be below that is the phonetic sounding of it. So my encouragement to you would be to never look at the top line again. <laughs> read through that bottom line a couple times. But if you see me, just call me Guy, okay? A <laughs> little bit about me. This is my tribe. I'm married for just over 23 years now and have five kids. I think we'll have one of them sitting here with me today, Autumn. Um, my wife and three of our kids are actually down in Florida visiting family and doing a couple of things. My oldest uh, is a high school graduate. Wish she could be there. I said, bud, you start college in the fall, and you're going to help pay for college, so I need you to hang back and spend some time working. These are my people. Uh, as Pastor Justin, Justin mentioned, I also work at Friends University. Bring you greetings from President Kerry, the Board of Trustees. Uh, it is an exciting time to be a Falcon, and I just want to take about 30 seconds to give just a quick commercial on Friends University. I've been there for seven years now. It is an exciting place to be, in part because God is doing a new thing. Uh, we, we are feeling God's Spirit moving afresh and anew in some ways uh, that just build excitement. I feel like there's a lot of great momentum and energy there, and we attribute it all to the graciousness, the goodness of God. So there's a new spirit on campus. I will say that there's new growth and renovations happening as well. Uh, maybe you've driven by, seen construction happening. The last couple of years, we have spent some time um, renovating our athletic complex. More recently, uh, right now, we're actually in the midst of a new build for engineering labs and a visual arts studio that is slated to be finished here uh, before school starts in August. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we broke ground on some pretty substantial renovations to our Rhiney Fine Arts space, including the addition of a new 300-seat chapel. Uh, God is blessing, friends, as we are in the, in the midst of growing our student body and providing new opportunities. We want to make sure that our facilities are great and, and that God seems to be with us there. And then finally, new programs and opportunities. Uh, just within the last month, we received word from our accrediting body that we have been given the green light to offer our first doctoral program building off of the, the success and the interest in our Master's in Spiritual Formation and Leadership program. 
We are launching a new doctoral program in spiritual formation and soul care, uh, which we are very excited about. There's a lot of energy already around that. Um, we've also been approved to offer an associate's degree, believing that there are a lot of adults uh, who have maybe started classes, started coursework, had a plan, and got interrupted. And so we want to give adult learners an easy on-ramp back in to the, the educational space. So whether you are a student who is thinking about what God might be calling you to and pursuing an education, uh, higher education, at a place that puts Jesus first, uh, or maybe you're an adult looking to get back into it, wanting to pursue, again, an associate's degree, a master's degree, or even our doctoral degree, there are plenty of opportunities at Friends University, and now is just an exciting time to be a Falcon. So I know that was longer than 30 seconds. I felt like I wanted to, to share those things about Friends University uh, as I am blessed to be a part of that community. So, Central Community Church, my challenge to you, to me, to us, my invitation this morning is for us to take a vacation from our problems. Well, kind of, and you'll see what I mean here in a minute. I want to show you a video clip. Uh, takes a little bit of setting up here. It's about a guy named Bob. Now, this is not the Bob that's normally up here on stage. I want to make that sure that is clear. Uh, but this particular Bob seems to have every self-diagnosed problem in the book. If you've heard about it, he's got it. And he has bounced around from counselor to shrink to psychotherapist. And people take him as long as they can stand him, and then they pawn him off on other folks. Well, at this point in the movie, Bob has just come out of his first visit with a renowned psychotherapist named Dr. Leo Marvin. Dr. Marvin and Bob had a great first session. Bob thinks there's hope here but is a bit shocked when Dr. Marvin says, Bob, I'll see you in just over a month at our next appointment when I get back from vacation. As you might imagine, Bob is not thrilled by this news. And we catch up with Bob and Dr. Marvin uh, at Dr. Marvin's vacation home where Bob has tracked him down. Bob, I'd like you to take a long look around you. What does everything you see here have in common? Vacation, Bob. Vacation. Now, I can't, Bob, at this time, give you the kind of therapeutic attention you need to solve all your problems, and you know why. You're on vacation. Exactly. But what I can do is this. Ah, don't give me pills. I already have pills. This is not pills. Read it. It says, take a vacation from my problems. I'm giving you permission to take a vacation, Bob. Not a vacation from your work and not a vacation from your daily life, but a vacation from my problems. Exactly. Now, I want you to get on that bus and go back to New York. But 
every single time a problem arises, I want you to take that prescription out and follow it to the letter, doctor's orders. I'll see you in New York, in my office, in one month. This is incredible. This is astounding. For the first time since Ethelin, I feel free. You've given me a great gift, doctor. The gift of life. You're a great man. I knew coming up here was the right thing to do. It feels right because you're here. And it feels right because you're leaving. Have a great vacation. You too, Bob. A vacation from my problems! Yet I will! There you go. Baby steps. If you've not seen the movie, it's quite humorous. And uh, just a prelude as to where things go from there, Bob takes a vacation from his problems right there in the local community. It's a, it's a very funny show. So I want you to hold that image, this idea of taking a vacation from our problems. And I want to dive into our scripture this morning. Guys, if you'll flip through the slides as I read through the scripture. Let me give a little context here. Um, so we are in the book of Judges. I know you spend a lot of time in the book of Judges. So probably don't need this background, but I want to give it anyway. Uh, we are kind of on the back end of Joshua's life. Joshua, Joshua was the leader who came after Moses. God used Moses early on in the Old Testament to deliver the Israelites from enslavement in Egypt, led them through 40 years of wandering in the desert, learning how to pay attention to God, how to move when God said move, how to stay when God said stay, knowing that as they move towards the promised land, the people of God would need to be focused on God in order to do and be what God wanted them to be in the world. And that was ultimately salt and light, right? God was calling a, a people holy and set apart that he would use to draw all people unto him. And as we pick up with Joshua at the end of his life and then the children of Israel in the book of Judges, we see that things are quickly getting off course. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6, reads, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. 110. Talk about needing a vacation. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods 
of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord's anger. They provoked the Lord's anger. Because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them into their enemies all around them, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. The God of the universe had promised to be with them as long as they were faithful to God. But they continued to pursue the things of the world that they saw in the nations around them. Continuing on in verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he, would, uh, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Concluding here. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I had laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as the, their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. God, we pray for ears to hear and eyes to see this morning, new and afresh, the lives that you have given us to lead in the world all around us. Help us to connect dots in only ways that you can, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got the Israelites, and if you read through the book of Judges, this is a repetitive cycle that happens over and over again, right? So the God of the universe wanted to lead the people without a leader in between God and the people, as he had with Moses, as he had with Joshua. So God leads them until the people become obsessed with the worlds around them, with what they see in the neighboring nations, and they decide they want those things for themselves. So they take their eyes off of God, they put it on the world around them, and it causes them very quickly to stray from God. So God brings oppression upon them. They eventually realize how far they are from God. They cry out to God. God brings a deliverer in the form of a judge, leads them back into right relationship, right standing with God. And then as the story goes, they take their eyes off of God. They put it on the things around them. And the cycle continues. 
So I want you to hold that cycle, right? Again, kind of the allure of the world around us. I want you to think about Bob, his prescription to take a vacation from his problems. I don't want to read this quote from Richard Foster, who says, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Hear those words again. Our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. So these words were penned by Richard Foster, former Friends University faculty member, back in 1978. I'm not sure what he was seeing in the world 45 years ago, but how much more does noise and hurry and crowds define our world today? So I want to dive in a little bit deeper here because I believe that the noise and the hurry, the, the noise, the hurry, the crowds are tools that the enemy uses in our world, in our day, in our time to take our eyes off of God in ways that render us less and less useful as salt and light, as tools in the hands of God that we are called to be. Let's take first a look at noise. Noise can take on many forms. Literal noise, audible, visual noise, digital and virtual noise. It serves to distract us and confuse us. In those places, in that noise, we often find hate and fear-mongering. Again, things that draw us in take our eyes off of Jesus, causes us to put our hope and our faith in other things. Noise. What is it for you in your world? Do you know? Can you pinpoint it? Why are we drawn to the noise? Right? The first thing we do when we get in the car, we turn on something. We get home, whether we're watching TV or not, right? We've got it on in the background. Our phones, all the pings and the dings, the notifications, right? It, it provides a strange level of comfort that I don't think it is supposed to bring us. So why are we drawn to it? What do we think we get from it? Jesus obviously models a different way. And here, upon feeding the, the 5,000, uh, we see in Mark that Jesus withdraws to quiet places. Did Jesus need to withdraw to a quiet place? Maybe, if he was kind of acknowledging his 100% humanity. But I think in his 100% divinity, he probably didn't need it, but instead maybe was modeling for you, for me, for his disciples of that day, the need to withdraw from the noise to a quiet place. So he says, 
uh, or Mark writes, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that, that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Jesus left the noise, not forever, but on a regular basis, pursuing quiet, pursuing silence, hushing the external noise so he could then deal with the internal noise. Can you relate? Can you identify? Silence. What would we gain by choosing more silence? What do you fear you might lose? Could I challenge you this week to find one small way to take a vacation from the noise in your life, to find the dial and to turn it down and see if in that space, in that vacation from the noise, you don't find something you've been looking for. How about hurry? Do you ever feel frenzied? That life is chaotic? Do you suffer from being overcommitted or overextended? Do you struggle to be mentally present where you are? Or are you too busy thinking about the next thing? Or that thing back behind you that didn't go so well? Do you suffer from feeling tired, fatigued, burnt out? Friends, if so, hurry might be one of the challenges, one of the struggles, one of the ailments that you deal with. So why do we always feel so hurried? Why do we choose? It is a choice to fill our lives so full that we have to hurry from one thing to the next. Why are we drawn to live life at such a fast, frenzied, and chaotic pace? Again, what do we think we get from living this kind of life? There's a story in the book of Luke when Jesus visits the home of Mary and Martha that does a, where we see Jesus kind of setting the record straight for what is and what isn't the best. Starting in chapter 10, verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, I would say in quite bold fashion, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus replies, you know, soft, gentle, but firm. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset 
about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Again, this isn't a withdrawal from all of life's activities, but it is paying attention to the moments where we have a chance to pause, to be still, to be present before the Lord, to rest, to engage in leisure. to practice Sabbath. So what will we gain by choosing to slow down, to stop doing, to rest? What do you fear you might lose? There are trade-offs, always there are trade-offs. But we've engaged in this life that we see being played out in all the people around us. And my friends, I would dare to say that it's not working. So what would it look like for you this week to take a vacation from some of the hurry, right? To maybe identify a few things from your calendar that you can pull out. To give yourself a little bit more time to breathe, to rest, to be present in the moment. Finally, the crowds. This one comes, and we see this riddled throughout. We see this riddled throughout uh, the scriptures. But Jesus often moving away from crowds to be in places of solitude. This comes in, uh, again, Luke 5. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. It says, while Jesus was in one, one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Sorry, here, let's get you there. There we go. Nope, scripture's not there. There it is. <laughs> there we go. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Again, we know if we've read the scriptures, if we've heard the stories, Jesus is constantly with people, praying with them, healing them, ministering to their deep needs. Did Jesus need to withdraw? away from the crowds in order to be refreshed, to be refilled, to be refocused on God? Maybe, maybe not. But we sure know that the disciples did. We sure know that we needed that modeled to us. 
Solitude. What would we gain by choosing to be alone? Not always, right? We're not being called to a life of monasticism, withdraw from the world. In fact, again, we've been created to be in the world as salt and light, but not to be of the world, right? So when we withdraw from the world for times, even moments, to be reoriented on the God above so that we can engage in the world around us in ways that are fruitful and helpful and not harmful and destructive. Is it worth choosing to engage in a little bit of solitude? Are there things that we fear we might experience in that space? Missing out? Being set apart? Standing alone? What's one small act you can take this week that causes you to withdraw from some of the chaos that comes in crowds and give that time, give that attention to the God above? I want to start where, or I want to end where we started this morning, this quote from Richard Foster. Again, hear this in light of what we've just walked through. Our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Friends, we have been called by God to be salt and light in this world, to position ourselves to be usable tools in God's hand to make a difference in the world. But if we are distracted and otherwise engaged in the things of the world around us in ways that causes us to take our eyes off of Jesus and become consumed with the things around us, we will cease to be the salt and light that this world very much needs. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are thankful for your word, for the truth of your reality, for the call that you have placed on our lives. And God, we pray as we go this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear in our own worlds, in our own lives, the noise, the hurry, and the crowds that is serving to distract us from you. Help us find ways to make meaningful change in our lives so that we can be used by you to make a difference in the world for our good and for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Central Community Church, it has been a blessing to be with you. Go in peace.